right, I think we've got most people in here. Uh, AV team, are, are we good? Are we, are we live? All right, great. Well, good, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. I trust you had a good time in your groups, um, just going over the FOF chapter, how to study the Bible, but also going through the exegesis for our passage tonight. So before I begin, let me just open our time in a word of prayer. Father God, we are thankful, Lord, and we come before you knowing that we've been given such a great gift, uh, the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit to help us to understand the things in your word, Lord. And I just pray that as we come before your word tonight, Lord, that we would take from your word what you mean for us to take from your word and that we wouldn't interject our own ideas into it, Lord, but would you help us to understand, Lord? And uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you, as you all know, um, this is Logos, you know, our midweek Bible study. Um, and I think most of you know, but what does Logos mean? You guys can just call it out. Words. I heard someone say words. And that's right. Logos means word or words. And as I went through our passage for this evening, 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, I found the name of our ministry, Logos, to be particularly fitting. Because as I looked at this passage, there are lots of words about words. So let's just start by reading the passage together. Um, and I have the passage up on my next slide as well. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And you can see that I've highlighted certain words in our passage. These are all words that are about words. And all throughout our text, words about words. So putting my detective hat on, this passage probably has something to do with words. And we'll see that it does. So we're just going to jump into it. Firstly, in verse 15. Um, actually, no, we start in verse 14. We see that it is about the words that Timothy is to give to God's people. Or Timothy's words that he's supposed to give to God's people. If I can have my next slide there. And here, we see a command. A command. The command is for Timothy to remind them of these things. And if we're seeking to understand the scriptures, words like them and these things should immediately draw us towards what is, who is them? What are these things? If I'm trying to understand this passage, we want to know what those are referring to, right? Those are the first two things that should immediately come up. And whenever there's maybe a little bit of ambiguity as to what certain pronouns are referring to, we need to look back at what was being discussed before for clues. So back in 2 Timothy 2, 2, 
we see, earlier in this passage, we see that Paul instructs Timothy, what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this gives us a lot of clues. And 2 Timothy 2.2 actually helps us answer both of those questions. Who is them and what are these things? Who is them? The faithful men. What are these things? It are those things that Timothy has heard from Paul, including everything that is in this chapter leading up to our passage for tonight. So as we read through that, we realize that what Timothy has heard from Paul are gospel words, the same gospel words that saved Paul, that saved Timothy, and these faithful men. And there's also, within this passage, the gospel command to persevere as a servant of God, and we see all of those different examples that Paul gives in the chapter. And there's also a focus on the gospel calling that's given to Timothy as well. So that are, those are the things that Timothy is to remind the faithful men. And these things are ultimately God's words. And the next command here, to charge them, it's actually not a separate command. Um, depending on your versions, that might be clear or not clear. It is, if we go back to our English grammar books, it is a participle. And a participle is just a fancy way of saying that it helps us to understand how to do that main command, right? So Timothy is to remind the faithful men of these things, and one way to do that is by charging them not to quarrel about words. So breaking this down, Timothy is to use his words to warn people not to fight about words. So if you're not getting the theme of, of tonight, it should be getting more and more clear. Timothy's charge to the people here is to not quarrel about words, and it carries an authoritative weight to it because it is done in the presence of God because the church is not ultimately accountable to Timothy. It's accountable to God himself. So to ignore the charge that Timothy brings is actually to ignore the authority of God. So does God care about our words? Yes, he absolutely cares about our words. Back in 1 Timothy 6, same author, same recipient, Paul gives a similar warning to Timothy. So 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 3, it says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And in this passage, we see that the scriptures give us two reasons not to quarrel about words. Number one, it does no good. And number two, that it ruins its hearers. So firstly, it does no good. There is no profit in fighting over words. There is nothing to be gained or won except maybe catering to our own pride, and that's not really worth much at the end of the day. You're never going to win someone to Christ by winning an argument with, with them or by 
debating them into giving their lives over to Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't present the truth of God's word to someone or correct any falsehood, but if that becomes the focus and that becomes the primary goal, rather than connecting someone with the Savior who saves, then we're the ones who need to be reminded of these things, the gospel calling that God has for us. We need to be reminded of Christ and the gospel. We are the ones who need to be charged not to quarrel about words. But not only is quarreling over words an unproductive waste of time, when we engage in it or entertain it in our lives, we're actively doing damage to the body of Christ. Do you guys realize that? It's not just a waste of time. It actively destroys the people of God. So this is not a neutral, zero type of thing. It's a negative. The text tells us that this actually ruins the hearers. And the word here for ruin is catastrophe or destruction, destroy. To give us a sense for the kind of destructive impact that Paul is describing here, the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is in 2 Peter 2.6. And that passage describes how God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. So that is the level of destructiveness that Paul is invoking here. When something is destroyed, it's destroyed for good. Like when a car gets totaled, there's no recovering or coming back from that. And that's what happens to those who get caught up in hearing these quarrels. While good words of truth can be used to encourage one another or build up one another, using our words for quarreling or fighting, word fights, does the exact opposite. It tears down and destroys the others who hear it. The words that God gives us for the purpose of building one another up and encouraging one another in our sinfulness, in our fleshiness, we can use to tear each other down and destroy one another. But how? How does merely hearing such quarrels destroy people? Because that's what the text says, right? It says that the hearers are destroyed, and certainly there is detriment to those people who are engaging these quarrels, but just hearing these quarrels destroys people, brings ruin. It's because the words and the time and the attention that we put towards quarrels and debates are words and time and attention that we are not giving to Christ and his gospel. And without Christ and his gospel, what are we? We are ruined, right? We are destroyed. And this one may hit closer to home than we realize. You know, when we think about quarrels about words, it's not as if two people are on stage, you know, arguing with one another in front of everybody else. I once spoke with a young man who chose to deal with his questions about the faith and about the existence of God by looking up YouTube videos and online debates. And he did this instead of entrusting himself to the goodness of God's word. And those debates, those quarrels about words, there was a lot of information flying back and forth in them, but they did not bring him any closer to God. In fact, they weren't neutral at all. They had the opposite effect. They drew him further away from God, and they ruined him. And that 2 Timothy 2.14 played out right in front of me. 
It's clear as day how quarrels about words destroyed the hearers. So remember, the charge to not quarrel about words is part of that same command to remind them of Christ and the gospel. Because you can't be doing both. You can't be quarreling about words and at the same time focusing on Christ and his gospel. If you're quarreling about words, you're missing Christ and his word. If you guys listen to the FOF message that was part of the, um, John MacArthur's message that was part of this chapter, um, you'll remember the illustration that he gave from the Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis. And it's about this crafty, experienced demon giving advice to a newer, less experienced demon. And basically, he tells him that all they have to do is fill up a person's mind with anything and everything other than Christ. And they succeeded. Because that's all they have to do. Keep us away from the source of truth and the source of life. You don't have to toss a tree into the fire to destroy it. You just have to keep it separated from its source of water, its source of life. And it will be destroyed just the same. And similarly, to ruin someone, you don't need to harm them or make them curse God. You just need to distract them and fill up their minds with anything other than Christ and his gospel. So if we ever find ourselves getting into debates about things that ultimately take us away from Christ, that's not neutral. That's harmful. If we make minor things more prominent or more important than the main thing, we've lost it. So what are we supposed to do then? We've talked about the danger and the destructive power of useless words and quarrels. So are we just supposed to keep our mouths shut? Never say anything to one another because of the risk of tearing one another down? No. What does Paul tell Timothy? He doesn't tell Timothy that he must learn to be a master debater. You have to get really good at that, Timothy. He doesn't say that. But what does he say? And that takes us to our next point, which is the importance of diligence with God's words. The importance of diligence with God's words. Paul emphasizes that um, Timothy must be a worker. And we see this in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Timothy was not called to be a debater, but a worker. And in sight of the day coming, being a worker involves work, effort, or diligence, depending on the the version that you have. Note that Paul is not telling Timothy that he needs to be smart. Okay, That's not what Paul is getting at here. He doesn't tell Timothy that he somehow needs to be clever in how he constructs his arguments so that he can win against these people who are quarreling about words. No, he's just telling him to be a hard worker when it comes to how he handles the scriptures. That is going to be his protection. To be diligent with the word of God. The words, do your best, or be diligent with, means that Timothy is to have an eagerness or a a zealousness towards being approved by God. Timothy's work is to please God, not to please men. His studying of the word is not meant to be about impressing other people with his Bible knowledge. 
It wasn't about showing up the false teachers. And you can imagine that that might have been a temptation of Timothy's at the time because there was these false teachers and they were talking very confidently about these things and people were going after them and maybe they were saying things against Timothy and then, you know, Timothy's aligned with Paul and Paul's in prison and he's about to, you know, um, be executed. So there are all these things that may caused Timothy to desire, like, okay, I need to be more forceful in these things, and I need to show up these people that are saying these things. What about for us? When we study the scriptures, and we work to understand it, we don't do this to please our discipleship group leader, or we don't do it to please our spouse, or we don't do it to please our pastors. Our standard is also not the people who are around us. It's not just about knowing more Bible than your roommate or your spouse or others in the church. No, the one who approves or not, the one who sets the standard is God. So we don't apply our diligence to the scriptures to be approved by men or to win arguments. We do it to be approved by God. It's his approval that matters. Just as Timothy's hearers are to be charged before God to not quarrel about words, Timothy himself is to do all that he can do to carefully and diligently handle the scriptures in a way that God approves. So does this describe us? Are we satisfied with just knowing enough to finish our exegesis worksheets in time for Logos? Or do we have an eagerness and a zealousness to be accurate, to grow in our understanding of the scriptures more than we already know. Even if we have learned a lot about the scriptures, do we yearn to grow more? Do we hunger for the truth, to understand what our God has said to us? If we do, we will put in the work in a way that we have nothing to be ashamed about. In the end, God will determine what kind of fruit is born out of the diligence that we apply towards the scriptures. We don't need to be ashamed by what the results of our labor are. We're not measured by whether or not people listen or respond well when we speak words of truth to them. All that we're called to here is to be approved by, uh, is to be approved by God and to apply diligence in the scriptures. And the text says, if we do that, we have nothing to be ashamed about. So how do we do this? How do we present ourselves before God in a way where we do not have to be ashamed? And the text tells us it is by rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth that we've been given. We need to handle the word of, tru- word of God rightly with the appropriate reverence and the appropriate care. So the word here for rightly handling is orthotomeo which is compound word, which means to cut straight or to rightly divide. So you can probably see ortho, that is a word that you guys probably can recognize, where we get orthopedics, so setting your bones and your frame in in alignment. Or orthodontics, where we make sure that your teeth are straight or aligned. So just like you would expect care and diligence from someone who is aligning your bones or aligning your teeth, The idea is that diligence and care is expected in handling something as critical and essential as the Word of God. So what does this mean? It means that we can't afford to approach the Word of God flippantly 
or carelessly. Now, in your FOF chapters, you were given help and instruction, a framework for how to study your Bible, how to do hermeneutics. You have your preparation, and then your observation, your interpretation, your application, and then repetition of all of that. And all of you are also given exegesis worksheets to help you rightly divide God's Word. And I encourage you guys to use those helps and use those tools to put in the work Be diligent workers at these things. It's not easy, because if it were easy, we wouldn't need to be called to work at it or be diligent with it, right? It's meant to be a little hard to do it because our understanding is muddled by our culture. Also, we're existing here, 21st century Christians, and the scriptures were not written in the 21st century. Right? So there's some work that we need to do to understand the context at that time that we don't naturally have. Now, we don't have time this evening to dig into each of the details of how to do Bible study, but I just want to offer the reminder that these tools and methods that we have, everything that's covered in your FOF books or in your exegesis worksheets, these tools and methods are meant to be guardrails to protect us from veering off course from a straight cut of the word of God. Similar to how a cast can help a bone to heal straight or braces can help to keep your teeth aligned, but they're not everything. The right tools help to make a straight cut, but just because you use the right tools doesn't necessarily mean that you will rightly divide the word of God. Your attitude in how you regard and approach the word of God has to be our starting point. And in our flesh, sometimes we start with the tools and we start with the methods. We don't start with our attitude. Yes, you need diligence, but before diligence, you need dependence. Before diligence, you need dependence. And this is something that I've had to learn over the years. As you study the Bible, as you get more comfortable with it, as you grow in your understanding, as you get better at doing hermeneutics or filling out exegesis worksheets, it can be very easy to get prideful. And if you approach the Word of God with an attitude of pride, that you've got it down, that you know how to do this, don't be surprised if the Lord humbles you. Ultimately, it's not about the tools, but about your attitude and heart towards God's Word. If you revere the word of God rightly, if you approach it with an attitude of dependence on the Spirit, you will seek out the right tools to cut it straight, and the Holy Spirit will bring understanding. Conversely, if you don't regard the word of God highly, you can have all the tools, and you will still not understand it. Because our understanding of the scriptures is largely influenced by whether or not we are walking in obedience by faith or whether we are walking in disobedience. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. So if we're not walking in the Spirit, how can we discern the truth? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There is a connection between whether we're walking in the Spirit and how well we understand the Word of God. 
And our fleshly selves are gonna, is going to tell us that there's no connection between those things. There's no connection between our understanding and how we live our lives. Our flesh will tell us that we can walk in the flesh, and as long as we're thinking logically and rationally, that we can understand the words of God. After all, they're just words, right? If I have a brain, I can understand words, and it has nothing to do with how I live my life. My friends, that is wrong. These are not words that are intellectually discerned. They are spiritually discerned. We can't claim to understand something that we do not live by. If you come to the word with a disobedient heart, we're essentially coming to it already committed to not listening to it. You guys understand that? Are we really surprised that we won't understand God's word if we begin from a place where we're already not listening to it? No. How silly would it be to expect to understand someone if you cover your ears every time they spoke to you? And yet we do the same if we come to the word of God while refusing to obey that word. So again, the purpose of this evening, we're not going to get into how to study the Bible here. But if you're interested, you can talk to your discipleship group leader, or you can come to me and we can offer some resources for you. But let's not put the cart before the horse. Start with your heart and your attitude. Pray for understanding and then you can move into the tools and the methods and all those things. Next, Paul tells Timothy the kind of words that he is to avoid as a servant of God. And that's our third point. Words to avoid. Words to avoid. Starting in verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. And this is reminiscent of our discussion on word quarrels or word fights back in verse 14. But it's a little bit different. Irreverent babble refers to words that are not of God and do not set him apart as Lord. These are words that are profane, or unholy, set against God. And ultimately, these are words that just have no substance. They end up being just a bunch of noise. And some of your translations may say chatter or empty words. So if we're devoting so much time and energy talking about things that scriptures may largely be silent on, or they're detracting from what the scriptures focus on, we need to check ourselves. Why should we waste our words on things that produce no value, that are empty and unholy and profane when we've been given words that can encourage and edify? But again, there's more to it than that. Irreverent babble, similar to when we talked about those word fights or quarrels, it actually has a negative effect on others. Irreverent babble. Instead of producing godliness and holiness, it encourages us to take the things of God lightly. Irreverent babble, instead of producing godliness and holiness, it encourages us to take the things of God lightly. These words communicate that the things of God are not that important. They're not that serious, that they don't really matter. Is it any wonder then what the text tells us next? 
The text tells us that irreverent babble will lead people into more and more ungodliness. How and why? What's so bad about empty words? Sure, it's a waste of time, but does it really lead people into ungodliness? More and more ungodliness even? Well, firstly, they devalue the words of God and they take us away from the very words that we need most. They destroy us because they take us away from what builds us up and what gives us life and blessing. They encourage us to believe that God doesn't care about how we live our lives and that he's not going to hold anyone accountable for their actions. And if that's the case, if not even God is going to hold us accountable to those things, why would anybody pursue godliness? Why would anyone care about godliness if we communicate that God himself doesn't really care? But that is the very thing that we communicate to others when we speak lots of words in pride without a reverence for the words of God. And this idea of leading people into more and more ungodliness, it's like taking someone step by step further and further away from abiding in Christ. It's like an enemy encroaching or slowly advancing into your territory. Irreverent babble, it can really be anything that moves us further from Christ. And if that weren't enough, the destructive impact of these irreverent, empty words is not just limited to those who first hear them. Verse 17 tells us that they will spread even beyond that, like gangrene. Now, gangrene is not something that we necessarily hear too much about anymore, but it's a condition where the affected tissue dies from a lack of blood flow caused by some bacterial infection. Gangrene needs to be treated immediately because it can spread beyond the initial tissue to the rest of the body. Left unchecked, it can be fatal. If it's not treated in a timely manner, oftentimes people would go so far as to amputate or cut off the affected part of the body, opting to just lose that part of the body rather than let the disease spread. Paul is comparing our idle or empty words to this terrible condition that can literally kill you. So what gangrene can do to our physical body, irreverent babble can do to the church body. And Paul goes so far as to name two examples of men in the church at that time. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were spreading the falsehood that the resurrection had already happened. They were likely taking some comments by the Apostle Paul and taking that to an extreme and making their own conclusions about that, saying like, oh, the resurrection has already happened. These men were false teachers who were using their words to promote ideas that were not true, ideas that just confused others. In verse 18, it says they have swerved from the truth. They have deviated from the straight and true path of God's word. And that's actually a direct contrast to what we learned back in verse 15. So rather than cutting the word straight, they're swerving away from it. This is the kind of talk that has to be addressed right away. It's what Timothy has to avoid and not get drawn into word battles about these things. 
And what is the result of these men and their irreverent babble? It says they are upsetting the faith of some. You see, what Paul is warning Timothy of in these verses is not a hypothetical warning. It's not a vague sense of something to kind of watch out for in the unspecified future. These men and their words at the time are upsetting, present tense, the faith of some. At the time of writing, as Timothy is reading this letter, it's happening in his church. Some people are being led astray. But how can this happen? Doesn't Romans 8, 29-30 say that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified? Doesn't Jesus also say in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So how then can someone with a genuine faith have their faith upset, as it says in this passage? How can they be led astray? They can't. Though someone with genuine faith might be misled for a season, the Lord will not let them remain that way. However, for those who merely profess faith, but they have not truly received Christ and submitted their lives to him, they can be led astray by men like this and their irreverent babble. Now, this truth doesn't detract from Timothy's responsibility to commit himself to diligent handling of the word of God and not entertaining this irreverent babble or quarrels about words. It is actually through the obedience of faithful servants of God who accurately handle God's word that clarifies who belongs to Christ and who doesn't. And ultimately, Timothy and every minister of the gospel has these assurances which we find in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So the church, founded upon the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will not be overcome by false teachers, by falsehoods, by word fights, or by irreverent babble. Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So yes, the faith of some will be upset. Some will be led astray. But, and here's the assurance that God's word has for us, God's firm foundation still stands. God does not fail, and God will not lose any one of his Because those who belong to the Lord, they bear a seal. Now, a seal is a visible mark on something that indicates at least two things. Authenticity and ownership. A seal is a visible mark on something that indicates two things. Authenticity and ownership. So if something has a seal, it shows that it's the real deal. Also, a seal is a way of marking what belongs to you. So cattle were often branded with a mark or a seal, so they were easily distinguishable 
So you could sort out which cattle belonged to whom. And someone else could not steal your cattle away from you because your seal is on it. So here, what is that seal? Two things are mentioned here. First, the Lord knows who are his. God knows those who truly comprise the church, those who are redeemed by Christ. The Lord knows who are his. If someone is of Christ, the good shepherd will not let them be led astray. They will hear the voice of their shepherd, and Christ will not lose them. And this assurance comes from God's words. And in many of your Bibles, this text is in quotation marks because it is a reference to the scripture. And specifically, it's God's words from Numbers 16.5. This is the Sons of Korah Rebellion. But I'll read that for us. In the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. And just not to not get into all the details of the story, there was a, basically a sorting at that time who were of God and who was not of God. And the people who were not of God, they were swallowed up by the earth. Right? So kind of a scary story. The second aspect of God's seal upon believers is let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And that's also in quotation marks in many of your Bibles. It's also an assurance that comes from God's word, specifically Numbers 16.26, so a little bit later in Numbers, same chapter. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And what this is basically saying, what this seal is saying, is that everyone who truly has Christ as their Savior will not continue down the path of iniquity that these false teachers, these irreverent babblers, start them on. And for each one of us, we may think that we know the word of God, but the false teachers, the irreverent babblers, those who gone to quarrels about words, they thought they knew the word of God too. But they didn't bear this seal. They did not depart from iniquity. Their lives showed that they didn't know the truth. So the question for us is, do we bear the seals? Do we depart from wickedness? Do we depart from iniquity? Though there are false teachers, those who are truly gods will depart from the ways of iniquity because that's not who they are. That's not their identity. That's not their path. And again, this does not remove the responsibility for Timothy and every servant of God to apply the proper diligence to the word of God to remind God's people of truth and charge them not to quarrel about words. Timothy still needs to be faithful with what he's been entrusted with. But what gives him hope and encouragement and perseverance, even when there are all these false teachers that are seemingly leading people astray, is that God will not allow those who are truly his to be led astray. They won't perish. They won't be ruined. God will protect them. Second Timothy, it's a letter that was written from an apostle to his child in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor at the church in Ephesus in the first century. Now, we may think that we are very far removed from that context, and in many ways we are. But there are principles here that have an application for you and I. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, you have a ministry of the word. You speak words. And either you can 
use your words profitably to build people up or your words are empty. If you're a believer, a member of the church of Christ, you are called to speak the truth in love. You're actually commanded to. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you, each one of you, emphasis mine, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So who is to speak truth with his neighbor? Each one of you. And men, I'll start with you. You might not be a pastor or a discipleship group leader, but what about your homes? Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And later on in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So if you take your role as a husband or a father seriously, and for you men who are not husbands or fathers, let me remind you that the kind of man that you are now is the same kind of man that you will be when you receive a different role. For all men, myself included, we need to grow in our handling of the word of God. And if we're diligent in it, we don't need to be ashamed. Our kids may not be saved, and our homes may not fit this gleaming picture that we see in magazines or in vlogs. But even so, if we are just diligent in the word, then we have no reason to be ashamed. For each of us, let's take some time to consider this week the things that we put our time and our energy into, the things we do our best at. Do we apply diligence to, I don't know, memorizing lyrics to our favorite pop songs? I used to do that in college when we could be memorizing scripture instead? Or how about to working to improve your basketball game when you could be working to improve your skill in studying the word? Or how many of you theorize about where the plot of your favorite TV show is, is going rather than meditating on the word of God? And how many of you debate about sports team or argue about who's the greatest of all time when we could be sharing something encouraging from the word of God that we've read? Would our diligence in the word be approved by God? Or is, is there a reason for us to be ashamed? As remember, one day we will stand before the Lord and he will see what we have done with what we've been given. Now, the work of Christ covers our sin. But when the master returns, he will ask, what we have done with the things that he's given to us. And he's given us a wonderful gift. He's given us his perfect word, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And he's preserved these words in his scriptures for centuries, so much so that we can have a copy in our language today. And we have teachers and we have resources online even that we can help, that we can access to help us understand his word. We've been given much. We have an abundance of provision, abundance of resources. So the question will be, 
will we be diligent to rightly handle such an amazing gift? And as we close, just a few application questions for us to consider this week. You know, these are things that if you would like to take some time to, to think about this evening, you can, but I encourage you to think through these things and maybe in your uh, share and prayer groups next week, some things to talk about. What do you put your time and your diligence into now? What things in your life do you do your best with? Would your diligence in handling the word of truth be rightly approved by God? Also, what can you start doing today to grow in your knowledge of God's word? So just some questions for us to consider and to examine ourselves in. And hopefully those questions will lead, uh, for, lead us to a place where we will continue to strive to be diligent with the, the precious gift of his word. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you to acknowledge your goodness, to acknowledge that we have received such an amazing gift, Lord, and we've received such amazing resources that we have at our disposal. And Father, I just pray that we would not be left um, wanting, Lord. We would not be left being lazy, that we would not be left not applying the diligence that you would desire of us, Lord, in these things. And we know that it's not just about filling up our minds and filling up our brains um, with knowledge, Lord, knowledge that can puff up and lead to pride. But these words that you've given to us, uh, they're meant to make us more like you. And Father, I just pray that that would be the effect, Lord, as we go to your scriptures, that we would grow in our love for your scriptures, but that we would remain humble with your scriptures and that our lives would be transformed by them. So we thank you, Lord. Would you help us, give us your spirit, that we can understand uh, these words and understand them in the proper way, not for quarrels, not for debates, not for word fights, not for empty chatter, but to encourage, edify, to build up one another in the faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.